Welcome to the fifth edition of News of the Church. It's the 21st of December of 2023, and it's the third week of Advent. It's the winter solstice, which used to be on the Feast of St. Lucy, 13 December, but the shift to the Gregorian calendar changed all that. St. Lucy is, of course, associated with light because of her name from Latin lux. And it's Ember Week, after St. Lucy's Day, like the old demonic Lenti Penti Cruci Lucy, or else Fasting Days and Embrings Be, Lent Whitson, Holy Rood, and Lucy. Uh, the solstice comes from the Latin word sol, meaning sun, and sistere, meaning to stand still. And this is because at the solstices, the sun's declination appears to stand still. Uh, this is the moment when the sun changes direction on an analema. You probably you know what an analema is, even if you might not know the name of it. It's You've probably seen uh, photos of the sun from the same spot at noon over the course of a year, and it makes a kind of a figure eight in the sky, and that's a... That's an analemma. Well, this is when the sun, the solstices, or when the sun starts to move the other direction. Um, the word analemma itself, by the way, is very interesting. Um, analemma in, in ancient Greek means a support. And it, that's because it looks like the support of a sling for a broken arm. That kind of figure eight that it forms. Anyway, I digress. Um, a while back I saw a movie called the news of the world that had Tom Hanks in it. And he plays a character that is a Civil War uh, Confederate officer sometime after the war, years after the war, going about eking out a living by reading from newspapers uh, various stories to people who pay a dime a head uh, to come and listen. You imagine that uh, a lot of people didn't know how to read and this is how they got some news and read them in an entertaining way and uh, that could be a nice to spend nice way to spend an evening of course they didn't have you know radio or television or anything like that anyway the the idea of being read to uh, caught my imagination and uh, so here i am a kind of a gazetteer and i talked about uh gazette and the origin of that word in the first one of these editions so here is your audio gazette of catholic things Okay, well, the first thing that I'm going to read from is from the, I think I've read from them before, the uh, newsletter of the Latin Liturgy Association that's based in the United States. Uh, this is from their number 44. Um, and it's dated in uh, early December. There are quite a few little items in here that are that are interesting. In their news from the chapters section, we read in the Detroit chapter, the Archdiocese of Detroit held a conference on purgatory on September 30th, 2023. The event was an outgrowth of the Archdiocese of Detroit's Confraternity for Holy Souls, a new venture announced in March 2023. The keynote speaker was Susan Tassone. I think it's probably, it might be pronounced Tassone. I don't know. But in Italian, it would be Tassone. Which, if I uh, am not mistaken, is also the company that makes uh, a wonderful Cedrata. 
which is a, a drink uh, in Italy that you get made out of a citrus fruit that's sort of like a kind of like a lemon and a grapefruit. Anyway, among the many points she made, perhaps the most memorable was that we should give priority to praying for the dead in non-Catholic cemeteries because those buried in Catholic cemeteries receive more prayers, not only from friends and family, but also from the clergy and the staff who serve the cemetery. This is a very good advice. I like this. Um, as a matter of fact, when um, I'm driving around or being driven around and I pass by a cemetery, as a priest, I always uh, throw a blessing at a, at a cemetery and uh, ask God to be good to the holy souls there, especially those uh, if it's a Protestant cemetery, uh, those, those holy Catholics who are buried there. Um, let's see. On the next section here, news from the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. 35 years ago, on December 10th, 1988, the first ordination for a priest in the FSSP took place. The location was Rome at Santa Maria dell'Anima Church. That happens to be the uh, national, the German National Church in Rome, right next to where the Piazza Navona is. Uh, now the FSSP has 300 priests and 150 seminarians in 130 dioceses in 30 countries on five continents. Well, that's an accomplishment. Uh, Santa Maria dell'Anima is worth a visit when you go to Rome. They've installed a new lighting system and they've cleaned up the church and it is absolutely magnificent. And Pope Adrian the Sixth is in there, I think. Is it Pope Adrian the Fourth? He was the last non-Italian pope before the election of John Paul II. Uh, another point in here. Uh, I was present at this event, Sumorum Pontificum Pilgrimage in Rome, October twenty-seven to twenty-nine, twenty twenty-three, the twelfth. Sumorum Pontificum Pilgrimage opened in Rome on Friday, October 27th, with Pontifical Vespers, presided over by Bishop Athanasius Schneider, Auxiliary Bishop of Ashtana, Kazakhstan, at the Basilica of St. Mary and the Martyrs, which is also known as the Pantheon in Rome. On Saturday morning, about a thousand pilgrims from 20 countries started the day with Eucharistic adoration at the church. It says Basilica here. I don't think it is a basilica. The Church of Saints Celso in Giuliano, from where they proceeded into the streets of Rome across the Ponte Sant'Angelo, making their way along the Via della Conciliazione. They entered St. Peter's Basilica for prayers and adoration, but were denied permission to offer an extraordinary Mass at the Basilica. So the concluding Pontifical High Mass on October 29th was offered by His Excellency Bishop Guido Pozzo, Secretary Emeritus of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith at the FSSP's parish of Santissima Trinità dei Pellegrini, the Church of the Most Holy Trinity of the Pilgrims. Of the Pilgrims. The liturgy included Palestrina's Twist Petrus Mass. It was really a, a very, quite a beautiful occasion. I was there for all of that. And it was very frustrating when they were trying to get into St. Peter's because they let the priests and, and, the, and the procession go up one side, but all of the, all of the lay people, they forced through, uh, secure, through security points to you know, put all their stuff through the machines and be wanded and stuff like that. And they only opened up one. And so, and they made a stand, in the, in the, they made a stand under the sun 
waiting and waiting and waiting for all these people. And, uh, you know, they had banners and flags and, it, you know, trying to get through this thing, this choke point, it was just terrible. And as a matter of fact, then they made us move in, go into the Basilica before mo- a lot of the people had even been able to get, get through security. It was terrible the way they treated us. Anyway, uh, news from, I'm still in the Latin Liturgy Association uh, newsletter. Re- news from Floriani. Recently, Floriani, a group of male singers specializing in traditional sacred music, was invited to sing for an outdoor requiem mass that was offered upon a stone altar in the Locust Grove Cemetery at Heritage Retreat Center in Sharon, Georgia. This cemetery is the oldest Catholic cemetery in Georgia. The mass is held annually to honor and pray for the departed, faithful departed buried at Locust Grove, including several souls who would have been alive during the American Revolution, as well as some relatives of the author, of the author Flannery O'Connor. The graves are spread across the forest floor almost haphazardly, and many of them are unmarked. The gravesite is so old that several graves nurture giant oak trees springing from the mossy resting places. Around 100 people gathered for the ceremony, and Floriani chanted the entirety of the Requiem. For more information about Floriani, go to www.floriani.org. That's F-L-O-R-I-A-N-I dot org. For more information on the retreat center, visit heritagega.org. Now, I happen to know... Uh, this singing group because they formed uh, part of a of a kind of pilgrimage a pro-life pilgrimage and trip in Italy that I was on and we stopped and sang in churches and stopped at pro-life uh, centers like uh, women's clinics you know support clinics and and places like that and I have uh, actually posts on the blog with videos of them singing they're a bunch of wonderful guys uh, speaking of purgatory Um, And again, Susan Tassone. Um, It says here, Susan Tassone has written her first children's book about the holy souls in purgatory. New Friends Now and Forever, A Story About the Holy Souls, is a book for children ages 6 to 10. Susan is the author of 14 books and has spent more than 25 years helping millions of Catholics storm heaven with prayers to release the souls in purgatory. New Friends Now and Forever is the story of twins, Ben and Hope, who become prayer pals with Mr. Ray, an elderly friend from their parish. They agree to pray for each other and to help him pray for his departed wife. Along the way, Hope and Ben learn that purgatory is real and that it is nothing to fear because it is a special way God shows his love for us. The children learn that the power of their prayers helps the faithful departed reach heaven and that these souls will intercede for them, becoming their forever friends. New Friends, Now and Forever, has been granted an imprimatur. I think what I'll do is I'll put um, a link in the show notes. It's for this, so that you can find this. Let's see, what what else is in here? There is um, a a longish piece from Dr. Joseph Shaw, who is the chairman of the Latin Mass 
Society in England, that wonderful organization. He's a real scholar and gentleman. You see his stuff scattered all over. Um, there's a, a an excerpted piece in here by Father Dwight Longenecker, whom I'm sure you've heard of, called Why Catholic Worship Appeals to Men. This has some real potential. And um, let's see, another piece. Oh, yes. I, I did want to share this one with you. Why Latin? Another perspective. If you are questioned and need a short answer, here it is. Because Satan hates Latin. If they ask, why does Satan hate Latin? You can use this answer, excerpted from www.propria.org, archived from February 2016. Satan hates Latin because Latin promotes unity especially the unity of the church, Christ's mystical body. Unity among the members of his body on earth, yes, but also unity among the past, the present, and the future. In fact, the whole communion of saints. Disunity is what the devil is all about. He divides, scatters, and confuses. His very title means just that, devil, diabolo, from Greek dia, balen, to throw apart, like the old game of 52 pickup that children play. As screw tape might have taught, anything that serves the principles of unity, especially unity of faith, unless it is faith in him and his empty promises, should be resisted, opposed, and undermined. Latin does that, or at any rate it did. It promoted the unity of the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, and it could again. So therefore, Satan says, denigrate it as dead, Convince people that it is unworthy of attention on that account. Paint ugly characters of anyone with a fondness for it. Do whatever it takes. As members of secular society, we are willing to put tremendous effort into learning second languages or requiring our children to learn them for the sake of mere commerce or recreation. But we are members of Christ's body first, and the unity for which he prayed does not exist where his members do not, because they cannot, worship together. How much more willing we should be then to learn, or at least get familiar with, another language, Latin, for the sake of worshipping as one in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which is the greatest and most solemn and the most sublime of all these actions which can glorify God. That last bit being a quote of St. John Vianney. Here's something a little different. Um, every year around this time, I really enjoy getting uh, Christmas cards from my readers uh, from over the years, and um, quite a, peop a few people send them, and they often send their annual update letters about their families, their lives, and so forth. And here's one that I got that I, I mean, I, I, a lot of the cards came with these letters, and the, and all of the notes were wonderful, but I just pulled one of them out. Uh, to share. It's got uh, lovely uh, photos of all of the children of the family and uh, also mom and dad and uh, a little bit of a little blurb about each one of them. It says the Dexter family. Uh, there is a happy hustle in our home. The days are wonderful and the weeks and months fly by. We can see on the horizon that our kids will be grown and leaving it and it saddens us to think of it. But right now, we get to be in the think of it, thick of it, praise God. 
Grace, 14, is our own little St. Therese of Lisieux. She is always doing little acts of love and making cheerful sacrifices for those around her. Her good example encourages and edifies us all. She makes our home beautiful with her artwork, Irish dancing, flowers, piano, and organ music, and more. Alphonsus, seven months, born on April 11th, and what a joy. He's a pleasant boy with chubby cheeks and is quick to smile. He is sturdy and strong, commands the walker, and is as chill as a ninth child needs to be. He shares his name with St. Alphonsus Liguori and Denise's great-grandfather, Alphonsus. Glenn, 13, is a dependable, careful, and willing worker. He personally kept busy with sweet corn and milking his cow, though he mowed a lot less lawn with the dry conditions. He spent 10 days at Camp Desmet in the Rockies and was excited to gain a brother this year. His eyes still light up when he sees him. Mary, 10, is jolly and easygoing. She likes to read, bake, swim, and sing. She was glad to attend the St. Maria Goretti Girls Camp in Indiana with Grace. Her legs are aching for a barn dance, where the Virginia Reel is her favorite. Anne, 8, has a creative mind and a big smile. She likes to write poems, tell jokes, and share clever ideas. She has an honest way of speaking her thoughts that is refreshing, yet unrefined. She collects things, too. Agnes, 7, loves hugs and good tasks. She's an eager helper who, seeks, who sees the goal through to the end. She likes kittens, hand sewing climbing trees, and being outdoors. She also writes and makes gifts for others. She is strong-willed and determined. Monica, five, is our curly blonde. She has a strong, clear voice and is assertive when not acting shy. She reads books aloud with emphasis and enthusiasm. May her voice be used for good. She thinks things through, is observant, and asks necessary questions. Rose, four, is sweet and gentle. She loves swimming helping Grace in the garden, getting pushed on the swing, and reading books with Mom. Her favorite animals at the Milwaukee Zoo were giraffes and flamingos. She also likes our old horse, Doc. Regina, too, is our little queen. She is animated and rambunctious. Her hazel eyes dance, and she is proud when given a job her size. She says, yep, in affirmation, likes to play catch, and imitates the big kids. And there's a picture of Dad and Mom here. Denise manages the home and schooling while dabbling in sewing books and guessing what the family needs. Her 2023 highlights are the family retreat at the Abbey of Our Lady of Ephesus. That's Gower Abbey in Missouri that I'm always uh, talking about on the blog. And uh, joining everyone on a 33-mile pilgrimage. She loves her life as a mother and wife. Keith is the best dad ever and does well to provide for our family. He loves farming alongside his brother, his father, and the next generation. He leads and reads aloud at table and makes us laugh. He encourages the children to ask questions, seek answers, and try new things, to be lifelong learners. Our family has had the unique opportunity to help to restore St. Irenaeus Catholic Church in Clinton, Iowa, and to return it to its proper place so that souls might be saved and the faith preserved. It has been a joy to witness how God weaves so many people together, sharing time, treasure, and talents. A lot of prayer and penances go into such an endeavor, and all for the greater glory of God. So goes life in the Dexter home. We ask God for grace every day, desire to receive the sacraments worthily, and try to do what is right, being ever mindful that the things of this life are temporary, 
but our souls will live forever. God has created us to know, love, and serve him in this life, so we can be happy with him in the next. Be assured that if you have received this, we give thanks for you and are glad to be on the journey together. Please don't hesitate to call or stop in and visit. God bless you. Yep, there's good in this world. Here I have the December 7th number of The Wanderer, which is in volume 156. means it's been around for 156 years. And there's a lovely photo on the front of the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, near La Crosse, Wisconsin, with snow on it. It's very nice. And here is a note, which is timely. Catholics can receive a plenary indulgence. This is by Francesca Polio Fenton. This year, Catholics will be able to receive a plenary indulgence, uh, indulgence from December 8th, the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, to February 2nd, 2024, the Feast of the Presentation in the Temple of Our Lord Jesus Christ, by praying before a nativity scene in a Franciscan church. Earlier this year, on the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi, the faithful gathered at the Basilica of St. Francis in Assisi, Italy, to honor the beloved Italian saint and celebrate the 800th anniversary of the approval of the rule of St. Francis. That was in 1223. And the creation of the nativity scene in Greccio. As part of the celebration of this Franciscan centenary, the Conference of the Franciscan Family asked Pope Francis for the approval of this plenary indulgence. The conference wrote, quote, In order to promote the spiritual renewal of the faithful and increase the life of grace, we ask that the faithful receive a plenary indulgence under the usual conditions from 8 December 2023 to 2 February 2024, Feast of the Presentation, etc., by visiting to the churches run by Franciscan families throughout the world and stopping in prayer in front of the nativity scenes set up there. The Apostolic Penitentiary, that's the one of the three great tribunals of the church, along with the Rota and the Signatura. The penitentiary is a jail. It's a, it, handle, it handles all matters having to do with the internal forum, including you know ha things having to do with confession and uh, also indulgences. So, the Apostolic Penitentiary welcomed the request, allowing the faithful to receive this indulgence under the usual conditions. Those who are sick or unable to participate physically can obtain the indulgence by offering their sufferings up to the Lord or by carrying out practices of piety. What is a plenary indulgence? A plenary indulgence is a grace granted by the Catholic Church through the merits of Jesus Christ, Mary, and all the saints to remove the temporal punishment due to sin. The indulgence cleanses a person of all temporal punishment due to sin. However, it must always be accompanied by a full detachment from sin. That's in order to that's in order to gain a plenary indulgence. If you don't have complete attachment detachment from sin, even venial sin, then you can only gain a partial indulgence, even by performing the same works. Anyway, sacramental confession, holy communion, and prayer for the intentions of the Pope are part of this. Uh, sacramental confession and receiving the Eucharist can happen up to about 20 days before or after the act performed to receive plenary indulgence. 
It's appropriate that communion and the prayer take place on the same day that the work is completed. One sacramental confession is sufficient for several plenary indulgences. However, for each plenary indulgence, one wishes to receive a separate reception of the Eucharist and a separate prayer for the intentions of the Holy Father are required. Okay, that last bit could have been tightened up a little bit. But anyway, that's from the 7 December issue of The Wanderer. In the December 14th issue of The Wanderer, we find this disturbing piece. A parish priest in Nigeria abducted while answering a sick call. A priest from the Diocese of Okigwe in Nigeria was kidnapped November 30th while traveling to administer the sacrament of the uniting of the sick to a parishioner. The diocese announced December 1st that Father Kingsley Eze, who serves as the parish priest of St. Michael's Umuakebi Catholic Church in Nigeria's Imo State, was kidnapped at approximately 8 p.m. that evening, and his whereabouts are unknown. In a statement sent to ACI Africa, CNA's news partner in Africa, the chancellor of the diocese, Father Prince Will Iwanwanyu, confirmed the kidnapping and asked for prayers for the safe relief of Eze. We solicit your fervent prayers that he may come back to us safe and sound, Iwanwanyu said. Agencia Fides, the information service of the Pontifical Mission Societies gathered eyewitnesses' accounts of the kidnapping, indicated that gunmen attacked the priest, known locally as Father Ichi, along with another person, Uchenna Newman, as they got out of their car at an intersection to do some shopping during a stop while where they responded to a sick call. The bandits are said to have first robbed the street vendors, shooting indiscriminately and wounding a passerby, and then forced the priest and his companion to follow them. St. Michael's Parish serves parts of Imo State in southern Nigeria, which has been the center of massive attacks that mostly target Christians. Earlier, the International Society for Civil Liberties and Rule of Law, InterSociety, shared with ACI Africa a report indicating that from January 2021 to May of this year, security forces and allied militias killed 900 armed, unarmed citizens, wounded 700, and arrested 3,500 people, most of them innocent Christians in Emo State. The report compiled in May also indicates that 1,400 people were extorted and 300 others forced to disappear, meaning they were likely abducted and their whereabouts are unknown. Well, a terrible story. The, this thing does bring to mind, however, something that I read today on the or yesterday, rather, the the Nigerian Bishops' Conference uh, issued a statement about the new document about being able to give blessings to same-sex couples and so forth. Uh, the Nigerian bishops were not very enthusiastic about it. And uh, around Rome, one hears stories of a Nigerian, kind of a Nigerian mafia that controls people and does a lot of human trafficking and basically slave trading and prostitution, and they... And they, they they terrify young people and young women with um, threats of uh, witchcraft and you know voodoo and so forth. It's uh, a lot of physical violence. It's a it's a terrible thing. Well, every issue of the Wanderer has a um, a weekly section called Catholic Replies by James J. 
Drummy, who's been doing this for an awful long time now. And um, there's a timely question, question and answer. Question. I heard people talking about the four sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance. Can you tell me what sins you're talking about? F.A. via email. Answer. In Holy Scripture, there are four sins in this category, so-called because in each case, the victims of these sins cried out to the Lord for help, and their cries were heard. Here are the sins and the relevant Bible passages. Willful murder. After Cain killed his brother Abel, the Lord then said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the soil. Therefore, you shall be banned from the soil that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Genesis 4, verses 10 to 11. Homosexuality or sodomy. Before he destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord said to Abraham, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grave, that I must go down and see whether or not their actions fully correspond to the cry against them that comes to me. I mean to find out. Genesis 18, verses 20 to 21. See chapter 19 of Genesis for an account of the destruction of the two cities after the men of Sodom sought sexual intimacies with two angels posing as young men while visiting the house of Lot. Oppression of the Poor a long time after Moses had fled Egypt to escape the wrath of Pharaoh, and after the king had died, the Israelites groaned and cried out because of their slavery. As their cry for release went up to God, he heard their groaning and was mindful of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus 2, verses 23 to 24. He then sent Moses back to Egypt to lead the Israelites to freedom. Defrauding laborers of their wages. In warning the rich of their impending miseries, James writes, Behold, the wages you withheld from the workers who harvested your fields are crying aloud, and their cries of the and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James five verses four. Yeah, the four sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance. Now you have heard also the scriptural references, even if you knew them before, uh, knew the four sins before. You might not have known exactly where they were coming from. Uh, that issue about so the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah reminds me of something. I'm going to pause here just for a second and see if I can look it up on the interwebs. Okay, here we go. Um, this is something I've watched a few utterly fascinating videos about on YouTube. It's about the finding of biblical Sodom uh, in the Holy Land. And um, the, I found, uh, I was looking for one particular article because I first heard about this from Dr. John Bergsma, who is involved with the St. Paul uh, Center for Biblical Theology. And um, so I did the, the search, including his name, and I came up with this article. There are many articles on the interwebs, but this one happens to mention uh, Dr. Bergsma, so I thought I would use it. Um, let's see here. Catholic theologian acknowledges archaeologists found biblical Sodom. And it quotes Genesis 19.24 in the Israel Bible. Hashem reigned upon Sodom and Gomorrah sulfurous fire from Hashem out of heaven. And this is an article by Adam Eliyahu Berkowitz on September 18th, 2023. 
Here we go. In a video interview, Dr. John Bergsma, professor of theology at Ohio's Franciscan University, acknowledged that after meeting with researchers, he now acknowledges that the ruins of Tal el-Hammam in southern Jordan Valley are most likely the site of biblical Sodom and Gomorrah. For the Catholic theologian, this marked a powerful turning point in his belief. Dr. Bergsma described how he had always been skeptical of biblical accounts that seemed too fantastic to be true. Quote, so Sodom and Gomorrah looks like one of those mythological stories out of the Bible, right? Bergsma said. Sure, fire comes from heaven. Tell me another one. And I'll be honest with you, when I was growing up and reading Genesis 19 and stuff like that, it was a challenge in my faith. This really happened, and are we supposed to understand this? Close quote. His skepticism remained firmly in place until about 15 years ago, when he was attending a Society of Biblical Literature conference in San Francisco, and unintentionally wandered into a presentation by Stephen Collins, Dean of the College of Archaeology and Biblical History at Trinity Southwest University, about his research into the Tal el-Hammam site. Quote, I started listening, and as I am listening to this presentation for about 45 minutes, near the end of it I began to realize, oh my gosh, these people presenting think that they have found the biblical sites of cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what they're saying in a really roundabout, really understated way, close quote. Bergsma asked the researchers if they had found evidence of a battle that would explain the destruction they found. They replied that they had not found any evidence of a man-made catastrophe. Quote, so I'm curious, like, what destroyed these two cities that you guys think are Sodom and Gomorrah, Bergsma said. And so the researcher starts getting very bashful when I ask this question. He says, well, I don't really want to go there, but all I want to say while we're recording this session is that it was a heat event. Close quote. Collins displayed a piece of glazed pottery from the site. While the pottery itself was typical of the Bronze Age, glazing was invented about 1,000 years later. Quote, that glass layer that you get when you basically set off an atomic bomb in the desert and it melts the glass and you get a kind of crystalline formation that's called Trinity, Bergsma said. So this pottery was raised to over 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit for a brief moment in time. Well, a long story short, they found massive evidence that a huge heat blast from the sky at about 25 degrees above the horizon incinerated these twin cities on the Jordanian side of the river just north of the Dead Sea, and they have the artifacts to prove it. From a natural material explanation, this looks like a meteor blast. Close quote. From a theological perspective, Bergman notes that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah play a key role throughout the Bible. Quote, this struck, this stuck in the cultural memory because this is a major world historical traumatic event for us, like the Twin Towers going down. Bergsmith said, this was a major disaster where these two cities were entirely wiped out by a heat blast from the sky, by the hand of God, as it were. But no historical source records this, even though Sodom and Gomorrah were arguably the two most powerful cities in that entire region, close quote. This realization that science had objectively confirmed through data analysis a fantastic biblical event was a pivotal moment for the Catholic theologian. Quote, that really changed my perspective on the Old Testament map because what it pointed out to me was that things that sounded so outlandish to be history, that even I as a believer was tested and tempted to discount, were suddenly shown to be a historical event. Close quote. Collins' research is truly fascinating. Today the region is intensely arid and the soil saline making agriculture 
unsustainable. The site is adjacent to the Dead Sea, which has a 34% salinity. This unique feature coats the rocks on its shore in thick layers of salt. This is consistent with the biblical account, which describes Lot's wife turning to a pillar of salt. But one of the characteristics of Sodom mentioned in the Bible is the incredible richness of the area. Lot, Abraham's nephew who escaped Sodom when it was destroyed, chose the Jordan Valley for this particular trait. Genesis 13, verse 10. Research at the site in Jordan, about 14 kilometers northeast of the Dead Sea, was completed in 2015, after 10 years of digging. The city, with its massive walls, palaces, administrative buildings, surrounding farm region, flourished and dominated the region for 3,000 years. The 15-square-mile circular Middle Gore was a fertile plain populated continuously for at least 2,500 years. The city grew to be five to ten times larger than the other Bronze Age cities throughout the region. Based on evidence found at the site sometime between 2000 and 1540 BC, the entire area suddenly became uninhabited for over 700 years. But the archaeological team found no evidence of the reason behind this sudden and lasting distillation. According to researchers, an enormous explosion over the city, such as that caused by a massive meteor, would account for all the evidence. The evidence suggests an airburst. Researchers were faced with a five-foot-thick layer of charcoal, ash, and melted bricks and pottery at the site which researchers called the destruction layer. The evidence of intense heat precluded a war or earthquake. They determined that the bricks melted at a temperature of 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit, hotter than a volcano. The evidence of intense heat precluded a war or earthquake as the cause of destruction. The study concluded that about 3,600 years ago, an icy space rock measuring 50 meters across entered the atmosphere while traveling 38,000 miles per hour. Lacking a crater to indicate an impact, the researchers concluded that the asteroid entering the atmosphere resulted in a massive fireball that exploded about 2.5 miles above the ground. The resulting blast was about 1,000 times more powerful than the Hiroshima atomic bomb and destroyed the region. The de event devastated the city, which had been settled since about 4,300 BC. Air temperatures in the entire region rose above 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit, causing clothing and wood to immediately burst into flames. Mud bricks and pottery began to melt, something even volcanoes do not do. Almost immediately, the entire city was on fire. The combustion was followed by a massive shock wave moving at about 740 miles an hour. The upper 40 feet of a four-story palace were sheared off and blown into a nearby valley. All 8,000 people living in the city were killed in the event. The storm traveled 14 miles across the valley, toppling the walls of the city of Jericho and burning it to the ground. The devastating effects of the asteroid were so intense that the left-behind shocked quartz finally fractured sand grains that form at 725,000 pounds per square inch of pressure. The destruction layer also contained microscopic diamondoids, transformed from the wood and plants by the fireball's high pressures and temperatures. Tiny spherules of vaporized iron and sand formed at about 2,900 degrees Fahrenheit. 
with such evidence indicating temperatures higher than man-made sources or volcanic activity, the researchers concluded that the only natural source that could account for the destruction was a cosmic impact. At the time of the catastrophe, roughly 50,000 people were living in the area of the Jordan Valley. The entire region, which had been fertile and heavily settled, supporting flourishing civilizations continuously for at least 3,000 years before the catastrophe, was abandoned after the asteroid strike for the next 600 years. 120 regional settlements within a 25-kilometer radius survived the impact but were abandoned. The report did not conclusively answer that question, but the researchers theorized that the explosion may have vaporized or splashed toxic levels of Dead Sea salt water across the valley. Located in an arid region, it would take several centuries until the minimal rainfall could wash away enough of the salt deposits to allow a return to agriculture. Radiocarbon dating dates the destruction to within 50 years of 1650 BC. Clues to this mystery may also be found in the biblical narrative. The destruction of Sodom is described as God raining down burning sulfur, or, in other translations, fire and brimstone, Genesis 19, verse 24. At the tall site, a layer of ash was discovered, and the remains of one palace are stained red from burning. In addition, pottery shards display signs of exposure to extremely high temperatures. Normally, evidence of fire at such sites result from military action. However, a military conquest would usually be followed by an occupation, and it certainly would not account for 700 years of desolation. What a fascinating article. There's a lot more to it. You can go and find a video about this where they show the evidence. And um, There's actually, uh, I think, a video of it with uh, Dr. Bergsma, I think. You should be able to find it uh, with the search. But all of this uh, reminds me of the old phrase that if if God does not rain some sort of punishment down on us now for what's going on, he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And now for something completely different, as the old phrase goes. Here's something from the May-June 2023 issue of Concealed Carry magazine. Uh, every issue has stories sent in about how um, people um, defended themselves. Tennessee man fires at naked burglar. A naked man invaded a Knoxville residence one day, rummaging through drawers and other parts of the house and vandalizing property. The homeowner found the man inside when he entered his residence and ordered him out. All, after also ordering his wife to flee the home, the owner took up a pistol and confronted the naked intruder. Rather than comply with commands to leave, the intruder continued to vandalize property. Taking up a windshield wiper, he tore off the resident's vehicle and advancing on the homeowner. The intruder disregarded several orders to lie down on the ground, and the homeowner shot him once in the chest, critically injuring him and ending the incident. This is from WREG News Channel 3 in Memphis. Um, I actually uh, had I actually corrected the grammar in here. The, the copy says the intruder disregarded several orders to lay down on the ground. I think it's lie down on the ground. Doesn't it? Right? Intransitive and transitive. I think there's a difference between those two. 
That's from Concealed Carry. Here's something a bit more chipper from Sacred Music. This is a journal that is in volume 150. It's from the fall 2023, the third uh, number of the year. My old pastor, Monsignor Schuler, was the editor of Sacred Music for many, many years, and I um, have some of my own pieces were in it. Uh, here's a piece by Kurt Poderak, who is the choir master at Christendom College and editor-at-large of Sacred Music. It's called The Last Word, Thermometers, Thermostats, and Modern Man. Professor Michael Foley discusses ways for the modern man to increase his capacity for sacred awe by Kurt Poderak. Anyone who has seen Cameron O'Hearn's Mass of the Ages trilogy knows his approach. He combines liturgical scholarship presented in doses appropriate to the populist medium of the internet with a winsome and often youthfully savvy style. His pairing of the pop-style church songs of the last 40 years plus 40 plus years with their apparent source songs in episode two of the trilogy is wickedly funny. For example, the editing that brought the theme for My Little Pony and Dan Shoots Gloria together is superb. You know, there's nothing new about this. I did this on the blog years ago. Anyway, one does not have to explain to the viewer that Shoots music is trivial. The juxtaposition of the two makes it abundantly clear. Being hip technologically savvy and, let's be honest, mocking their pieties of their elders was supposed to be the trademark of the boomer generation. They were to be the future of the church. They were the quintessential modern man for whom the liturgy was to be reformed. In 1969, Pope Paul VI himself said about the soon-to-be-released new mass that participation by the people is worth more than Latin, particularly participation by modern man, so fond of plain, lang fond of plain language, which is easily understood and converted into everyday speech, close quote. Yet, after 50 years, all the statistics for mass attendance are down, especially among young people, as survey after survey shows. Compare this to pilgrims, 16,000 strong, half of them 20 years old or younger, marching across the French countryside to Chartres for the traditional mass last May. How many young people would do this for the current vernacular mass? Have the tables been turned on the boomers? This is where O'Hearn's latest release, somewhat awkwardly entitled Michael Knowles Explains the Latin Mass in Five Levels of Difficulty, comes in handy. In this film, internet personality Michael Knowles discusses the traditional Latin Mass with five different groups of people. Children, a young adult, a rather polite internet atheist, Alex O'Connor, a priest and a theologian. The idea is that, intellectually, the discussions get more and more sophisticated. While the whole film is worth watching, it only takes about a half hour, the theologian, Professor Michael Foley, best gets to the point that I would like to make. He treats Pope Paul VI with utter respect, especially in his desire to respond in some way to modern man. Although the term modern man has been mocked and ridiculed by some conservatives, Foley fully admits that there is such a thing. Quote, we live modern lives, and our modern lives are different from those of our ancestors. We don't have the same connection to the land, to the food we eat. We have different sleep schedules, thanks to electric lights. We don't see the stars the way we used to, because we live in cities with light pollution. We're harried and anxious. We privilege efficiency. 
Paul VI, I give credit for being very sensitive to this. He was very sensitive to the fact that modern man was an oddity in the history of humanity. And so his goal was to make a liturgy that would, in a sense, be more user-friendly for modern man. Yet, I personally disagree with his solution to the problem. Professor Foley then said that if I could talk to Paul VI, I would say, yes, you had a brilliant goal, but ironically, the pre-modern right is the better antidote to this modern problem. He then goes on to say that modern man does not need a thermometer that merely reflects his own temperature. He needs a thermostat that helps to raise the temperature to get him out of the funk of modern life. That's really a very good image, isn't it? He needs to experience a world where time isn't measured so closely and, the ex and experience a world of beauty and of sacred awe. Modern man needs something different from modernity to help his soul. This is dead on, isn't it? Is this what young people are responding to when they show such interest in the older liturgical forms? I think so. They know the modern world quite well, and it has gotten more modern than it was 50 years ago. We've had enough of that. Thank you very much, they seem to be saying. Don't you have anything else to offer us? I think that they are seeing liturgical tradition through fresh eyes, just as I did some 40 years ago when I first encountered Ad Orientem worship. To me it was a revelation of how to worship God in a powerful way. Perhaps to someone older, it may just have been a painful reminder of the bad old days when Sister X would slap his knuckles with a ruler. However, is this an association that, while subjectively real, is also accidental? We need to look at these things afresh, and this needn't be exclusively about the old right. I think that Professor Foley strikes the right tone. Okay, boomers, let's talk. And thus he concludes um, his piece in Sacred Music in the fall edition, number three of volume 150. Yeah, that uh, series um, on the Latin Mass, it has a couple of powerful moments. There's this m moment when they show a graphic of, of how the, uh, the old Mass was edited. And, um, oh gosh, it's worth uh, the price of admission just seeing that. Um, one of the things that I, I find a little bit amusing about that whole, th their, their project, is that uh, they're, going, uh, they're going through things now and exposing them in these, you know, films and so forth that I've been talking about for decades. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that's fine. Great. A new generation, you know, some young pups can come up and start, you know, figuring out um, how to make the wheel. But, um, uh, and I'm glad they're doing it because they're doing it with very exceptionally high production values and they're, and they're right on in, in their, their hearts and their minds and uh, what they're uh, trying to to, uh, to bring about. So I'm all for them. And with that, I should uh, wrap this up. I've had your attention for quite a while. I hope that it's been uh, helpful for you. There's some interlocking themes. These things, you know, I, I don't really plan to make everything kind of interlock, but somehow it always winds up doing so. And that's the beauty of what it is to be Catholic. It goes back to that whole issue of unity that we heard maybe at the beginning and talking about Latin. It all fits together. Things which are good and true and beautiful are all interconnected, aren't they? So thank you very much for your attention. This is Father John Solsdorf. Please pray for me as I will for you.